practicing everything out so you don't have no problems. You get yourself a W-2 at the end of the year. You want that. Trust me. <laughs> don't be like me in the past where I learned from that mistake, okay? Now, you have to pay yourself a reasonable salary. What is a reasonable salary? Well, if you look up on the IRS rules, they have, cert they have certain rules around what a reasonable salary is. It can be based upon expertise, how much money the business generates, um, uh, the, the economy, where you're located. It's a lot of things that are involved in this, okay, when it comes to reasonable salary. That's why you want to talk to a... Um, a legal or a, a financial professional to be able to discuss what a reasonable salary is based off your business. I'm just giving you an example here. Now, the example I'm going to give you is, I'm going to say out of this $100,000 in net, I only want, I want 50% of that to, to be paid out as a reasonable salary to me. So I'm going to take a salary of 50,000 and I'm going to have the other 50,000 being paid out as a distribution to me. The distribution is still going to come to me. I just want it to be done differently. And I'll, I'll talk about why. The reason why is because on your reasonable salary of $50,000, you have to pay self-employment tax on that reasonable salary, okay? So, now that I'm only taking a salary of 50000 my self-employment tax, that 15.3%, instead of it being $15,300 that I'm paying on the whole, on the entire $100,000, I'm now only paying $7,650 in self-employment tax because my salary is only $50,000. You get it? 50,000, 15.3%, $7,650 in self-employment tax instead of 15,300 because the entire 100 grand, I'm breaking it up into reasonable salary. Now, what happens to that other $50,000 in net? I'm paying it to me as a distribution. That's one of the advantages of having an S-Corp. You can pay a distribution to yourself. That distribution that you pay to yourself, there is no self-employment tax on the distribution. So now that there's no self-employment tax on the, 50, on the distribution, I'm getting the 50,000 bypassing that 15.3% in tax. I still have to pay, of course, the federal, the state, local, and et cetera taxes on that 50000 I'm bypassing that 15.3%, though, that becomes expensive to me over time as I start to make more money. So now, no, uh, no self-employment tax on that other $50,000, $0 in SC tax. So now I only had to pay $7,650 because I distributed it out. Now, I know what you're probably saying to yourself. Well... Don, why don't I, if I can bypass the self-employment tax of the 15.3%, why don't I just pay out my entire amount as a distribution? I know you're probably thinking that as an entrepreneur because, look, I would think the same thing. 15.3%, mm, I've paid out as the distribution. Trust and believe me, the IRS keeps a very close eye on that. And that's why they say reasonable salary. Because if you start paying, if you try to abuse this rule, and out of this hundred thousand, you say, you know what, I'm only going to take a reasonable salary of ten of ten thousand dollars or ten percent of this, and the other ninety percent is going to be a distribution, I can guarantee you're going to get flagged. Almost guarantee it. 
you don't abuse this here, right? So I say 50-50, there's others online that say 60-40, right? Some people, it depends, talk to, your, talk to a professional, right? But you wanna make sure that it's a reasonable salary. I'm going 50-50 and I'm being modest here, okay? Don't abuse this rule. They put this in place for a reason because they know people are gonna to try to bypass and pay out an entire distribution of themselves to bypass the 15.3% in tax, right? So that's the reason why as an entrepreneur, don't try to get, don't try to do any funny business here, right? 50% goes reasonable, the other 50% goes distribution. Cool, I'm able to bypass. Now, if we talk about it from a savings perspective now, remember, between my $15,300 that I'm paying in self-employment tax on this entire 100K, plus that 25% that I'm paying in federal and state taxes, I'm paying about $36,000 over here as an LLC that's taxed as a, as a sole prop. But now, since I'm an S-Corp, I'm only paying $7,650 in self-employment tax, and I'm bypassing the self-employment on that other $50,000, and I still got to pay my federal and state taxes, right, which is still going to be $20,000 over here, same thing. But the difference is now, instead of me paying $36,000, I'm actually paying about $28,000 in taxes on this side. So now that I'm only paying 28 on this side, and I'm gonna write this down. Now that I'm only paying 28 on this side, instead of actually paying 36 on this. What's central in a prosecution for gaming fraud is intent. So for example, if somebody was just intoxicated and sloppy and didn't realize the cards had been dealt or didn't realize that uh, they had moved chips uh, to a position on the table that constituted a wager, it would be a defense if there was no intent to defraud the house. So what's really important is we have to obtain the videos that show the activity of the player and it's central to the prosecution's ability to, to uh, successfully prosecute these cases to have the video so they can prove that the person uh, wasn't merely making a mistake as opposed to committing a crime while gaming. With regard to defenses to animal cruelty charges, of course, there's always the defense of insufficient evidence because the state has to prove the charges against you beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, you also can claim defense of self-defense. If you're being attacked by an animal, you have absolutely the right to defend yourself. So if you were attacked by a vicious dog and you had to kill the dog to defend yourself, you would have a valid self-defense claim. Another facet of self-defense would be defense of others. So that if your animal was being attacked by another animal, you would have the right to use deadly force to kill that animal if necessary to prevent your animal from being killed by a vicious dog. Finally, uh, intent would come into play in some types of animal cruelty related charges such as dog fighting. Let's just say you sold the dog and you had no intent that that dog would be used for animal fighting, 
but it was of a specific breed that had a violent nature. And ultimately the person who purchased your animal used it for dog fighting. If you did not intend the animal to be used for that purpose, you could not be convicted of selling an animal for the purpose of fighting. In Las Vegas, if you were charged for the first time with an act of solicitation, we can almost always get those charges dismissed. Now, you may have to intend some type of class uh, for sexual awareness, but if you complete the class, the charges against you would be dismissed. I'm attorney Michael Becker with Las Vegas Criminal Defense. If you've been charged with a criminal offense in the state of Nevada, let's sit down, hear your side of the story, and see what we can do to get your charges reduced or dismissed. Christine is going to start off this hour in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Hi, Christine. How are you? Hi, how are you today, Dave? Better than I deserve. What's up in your world? Um, I'm calling because um, about two years ago we decided to get on your plan. And um, in the beginning, we weren't very confident in ourselves, me and my husband. So we had uh, my mother-in-law helping us out with it. And we had decided to open up an account in her name and all of our income would be deposited into this account, um, but she would help us with, you know, getting on the plan and budgeting and stuff like that. Well, we moved uh, from New Jersey to Pennsylvania, and we've made the decision to buy a house. But the problem is, is when we're trying to get a mortgage and get the ones like Churchill offers, they... Um, they will not accept the income from the previous two years because it wasn't out of our bank account. So we're wondering another way we can prove to the banks that we do make the income and we can afford a mortgage and how to get a mortgage. Tax returns. Two years, of your, two years of your tax returns should do it. Just give them the tax return, but... Don't they want to see us paying bills on time? Yeah, they'd like to see you having paid your landlord on time, uh, early or on time, and you could provide a lease that proves that the lease was in your name. Um, I don't know if this is going to work, because you've not been operating as if you have a life. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and I'm, I hope you've made the transfer to where you're now managing yeah. your own money. Of course, yeah. Because this yeah, was a really bad here. idea. Okay, yeah. for a lot of reasons, but this is part of the problem with it, you know. So, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, you may it may be two years, but you may have to establish a, uh, a, a landlord payments record out of a checking account that you own for two years. That may have that may happen. But you can, prove, you can prove your over. income with your tax returns. Yes, but we can't prove the payments that we we're making to our landlord out of her account. Or anything else, for that matter. Exactly. Any other non-traditional credit, for instance, cable company and everything else. 
because it was all out of her account. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you'll be able to pull that off. Churchill can walk you through it and tell you, but um, I, my guess is is that this has delayed you buying a home uh, on a mortgage anyway, uh, which might not be all bad. You just save up a little more for a down payment and rent something inexpensively. The good news is you got you, you've stopped the mess and it's now in your name and so and you and you can control your your money and your future from this point forward. NRS section one nine three point one six five is an enhancement for use of a deadly weapon during the commission of a felony, and it provides for a penalty of up to twenty years if you use a deadly weapon when committing a crime in the state of Nevada. There are some limitations. Uh, it is a consecutive enhancement, which the court must impose. And if you are convicted of this enhancement, the court cannot place you on probation, but the court cannot sentence you for more on the enhancement than the amount of time you receive for the underlying offense. So, for example, if the enhancement provides for up to 20 years and you're convicted of an underlying offense and you receive five years, the most you could get on the consecutive enhancement is an additional five years in state prison. There are a variety of circumstances that the court will consider in how much time to give you for a deadly weapon enhancement, including the circumstances of the underlying crime, your criminal history, the impact that the use of the deadly weapon had on the alleged victim in your case, uh, and any other mitigating factors which the court might reasonably take into consideration in determining an appropriate sentence. What's commonly referred to as rape elsewhere is legally called sexual assault here in the state of Nevada, and it requires sexual penetration, however slight. It does not necessarily have to involve intercourse. It's without the consent of the party or under circumstances in which you reasonably should have known that the person was incapable of consenting. A common example of that would be someone is passed out, drunk, or on drugs, so they're not able to understand what's taking place. Ultimately, the issue of what constitutes penetration is up to a jury to decide. The instruction itself says that any penetration, however slight, is sufficient, but we're often actually debating a trial whether a penetration occurred, if it was touching on the outer lips, for example, of the vagina, or if there was a licking, how far, literally, how far in did the tongue go? And these are questions for juries to decide as to whether or not there's actual penetration. If a prosecutor here in Nevada believes that someone tried to sexually assault someone, but there was not penetration, then they could be charged with the crime of attempt sexual assault, which carries slightly less penalties of 2 to 20, as opposed to a possibility of 10 to life if you're convicted for sexual assault. If there's substantial bodily injury, 
It's life with parole after 25 years or life with no parole at all. Also, for any sexual assault crime, if you are convicted, there will be lifetime sex offender registration. We find that a lot of innocent people get wrongly accused of rape. And this happens really for a number of reasons. First of all, there's a lot of false accusations. A lot of times the accuser will, will make accusations out of anger or jealousy or spite. We've seen situations where a guy was dating a young lady and uh, she wanted to take the relationship further and she wanted to be exclusive and he didn't want to do that and, and wasn't giving her the attention she was seeking. And she felt insulted and she felt hurt and made false accusations out of spite to get him in trouble. And situations like that are actually very common. We also find a lot of times the accuser will make a false accusation of rape uh, in order to get attention. A lot of times the accuser has mental health issues. The accuser is a, a narcissist. Uh, and the accuser likes the idea that they're so desirable that other people are desperate to have sex with them and uh, desperate enough to commit rape. And so they imagine things and they make false accusations to try to create this reality as part of their mental pathology. We see this very commonly. Also, a lot of accusations of rape arise out of a misunderstanding. So it may be a situation where you went out with someone and you guys were making out and there was foreplay and you ultimately had sex with the person. But later the person says, oh, I didn't really want to do it, but I, I was scared to speak up. I was scared to say no. I, it, it was against my will. But if that person didn't communicate that to you, and, and based on the circumstances, you honestly and reasonably believed that they were into it and that it was consensual, then that's really not a rape. There are many defenses to sexual assault. And notwithstanding the fact that these charges are very serious and it's very scary if you're charged, in most circumstances, we come to learn that there are two sides of the story and the issue of consent is often very murky. If we can show that our client reasonably believed that the other party was consenting, we can win a not guilty verdict because the state has to prove that the sex occurred without consent. Again, often that's murky. And when it's murky, it's hard for the state to win a conviction. Had like a long way to go before you reached your peak. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I had no clientele. Okay. Know, I had no clientele. And um, it, it took a while. It took maybe six months to build, to build trust in the community and to build clientele. So thousands of these credit cards you're literally taking these little holograms and you're physically like placing them on each of these credit each cards one. with your hands each like one. hand by hand each one each credit card holy each, shit each card's dude. how handmade. long does that take how long does it take to do one card oh i had it down i could i could print one card in less than five minutes i could print I could everything print, print it I could, stick everything onto it yeah well yeah see I would already have all the I would already have all the the templates lined up in Photoshop. 
Okay. Like ready to go. All my windows open. Bomb, 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 bomb. You know what I mean? And then I would load maybe like 10 or 15 cards in the printer. And mm-hmm. I would be like, okay, print in sequence. Print one, print two, print three, print four, print five. So then it would it would run out all the cards. Print them front and back. You know okay. what I mean? It would print the, put all, and the, the only thing I really had to do myself was emboss and do the hologram. So I would have to physically place the hologram myself and use a heat press to adhere it to the plastic. Mm-hmm. And then I would have to, to to manually emboss the card myself. And this See. is before I got the auto embosser, where I could just <clears> throw them in and do a batch, and it would you know run a fifty or hundred at a time. Damn. Yeah. So when I got down, when I got really efficient at it, I could maybe do a hundred cards in an hour. About an hour, I could print hologram and emboss about a hundred. So you make close to a hundred, a thousand cards in a day. Yeah, easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm cranking away, but then, you know, sometimes you have problems. Mm-hmm. The printer starts, gets too hot and starts fucking melting cards and printing mm-hmm. shit sideways, you know. So you've yeah. always got little issues. Right. Yeah, like that you got to deal with. But, yeah, I could do a thousand cards in a day. What's the most cards day. that you did in a day, you think? That I've manufactured in one day? Mm-hmm. I think I've done about 800, six, between six and 800 in wow. one day. You know, on a good day, if everything mm-hmm. was going right and I had mm-hmm. all my equipment operating mm-hmm. properly. Yeah. Okay, so how did you start getting this getting this out there on on online or on these black market on these uh, um, on the dark web and start getting customers to buy shitloads of them? Yeah. So so the initially the first uh, Carter forum that I was on, I went ahead and I just made my first post. Here I am, new vendor. Right. Um, here's my product. You know, you post pictures. It's like a whole, well, it was like a whole thing, not anymore. And then, you know, I would get maybe like one or two orders a month, mm-hmm. you know. And then once those orders came in and like people started leaving positive feedback, it just kind of snowballed after that. And then I remember the day, because I would only get maybe one or two orders, but I remember the day I woke up and I checked, I think I checked one of my emails and I had 15 or 20 20 orders waiting for me and i couldn't believe it how much per, how much thousand dollars one order is a thousand dollars yeah for how many cards uh a hundred a hundred cards yeah it's twenty dollars a card a hundred cards two drivers or you get i'd make ids for you however many you wanted and then i would do i think it was like a hundred cards embossed everything encoded numbers and ids and ids yeah. Holy shit. But I wouldn't make a hundred IDs. Obviously I'd make like two or three. Okay. You know. Or whatever that whatever they wanted. But it I mean, you know, so there, there was a cap on that. So the IDs have to obviously correspond with the credit cards. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because say you go to a store and you make a purchase, um, and it's over like three or four hundred dollars. Uh, like a lot of stores, like people don't realize this, but a lot of stores, like say Best Buy, you go mm-hmm. to Best Buy, if you make a purchase over three hundred dollars. They ask physically ask for your card, mm. and they physically take your card, and they, they go on their POS machine. Now, their POS machine, the point-of-sale service machine, won't let them process the sale unless the four digits on the front of the card match what's actually encoded to the card. Mm. So it's like, a, it's like a security step. So what they do is they take the card, and they punch the numbers into the computer because you've already swiped it. So they're going to punch these numbers in. And if these numbers in the front of the card don't match what's being swiped, it's automatic fraud. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. So you have to have the corresponding plastic to match the to match the numbers, and you have to have the ID because they're going to ask for for ID because a I don't have the people's PIN number, so you're not processing it as debit. You always have to process it as credit, even though it's a debit card. Got it. So they have to have ID. When you process anything for credit, they always ask for ID, always, especially if it's a big purchase. Right. You know. Huh. Louis Vuitton, you go to Louis Vuitton and try and buy a $2,000 handbag on a credit card, they're going to ask you for ID. Right, right. 1,000%. Yeah. You yeah. know, even if you even if you go in there looking the part, they're still mm-hmm. going to ask. They always ask for ID. Right. You know. So you have to have the ID to match the card. Everything mm-hmm. has the jive, the numbers. Okay. Everything has the to to be coherent. Okay, so is there a minimum number of cards they had to buy for one order? So is the minimum a hundred card? Minimum 100? it was a thousand dollar minimum order. Okay, so it was a hundred cards and each address the thirty five fifty three factors. Uh, I think having both sides know that I'm attuned to that and want advocacy on that is important. Other things that I review are often could be letters, it could be a thumb drive of a video or something that's on that point. And I think what I've told lots of lawyers is that, you know, I travel around the entire Western District of Missouri. Sometimes I'll do eight sentencing in one day and just sitting and get in the car at five o'clock and drive to somewhere else um, to do more sentencing. To, to keep it on schedule, I need to know ahead of time what I'm dealing with. And I can watch a video that's been produced or you know, look at a PowerPoint beforehand, and I promise I do it, um, that I'm, it's not just a thumb drive sitting out there. And I can do that and stay on schedule. You mentioned the factors 3553. For those in our audience that aren't familiar with, with those factors, can you elaborate a little bit on what they mean? Yeah, so uh, 18 U.S.C. 3553 is a statute that governs sentencing. And so what every federal judge has to do is, one, properly calculate the sentencing guideline. And then, two, apply the 3553 factors. And so clearly the sentencing guidelines Um, are generic. They have nothing to do with the human that's in front of you. The 3553 factors say, now look at this person like a human, not like a grid on on the back page of the sentencing guidelines. And so the 3553 factors, honestly, there's something for everybody. If a judge wants to sentence somebody harshly, there's a factor for that. If a judge wants to sentence someone leniently, there's something for that too. And so you look at the history and characteristics of the defendant. You look at what happened in this particular crime. What's a just punishment? How do you deter? How do you rehab? It's in it's the it's the antithesis, it's the opposite of the sentencing guidelines. Now I've got to look at you and your crime and your background and what do you need to end up being a successful citizen of our country. And although a defendant can't change the past, the bad decisions that he may have made that put him in the crosshairs of a prosecutor and in the Department of Justice, 
What steps have you seen defendants make that have made a favorable impression upon you when you're considering those factors? Yeah, it takes me back to what a former U.S. attorney and who's now a district judge has told me. There's really only two kind of crimes. There's a crime that I'm mad at you, and there's a crime that I'm scared of you. And so I'm going to talk about, hopefully put it in the category, I'm mad at you. You've used drugs. You've run from a cop. You had a gun. As opposed to I'm scared of you, you produce child pornography. So um, I think when you, when you look at that, if you're a federal judge and you're sentencing somebody, you want to know that somebody's genuinely remorseful for what they've done. And so I've had times where, you know, well, judge, I want you to pass along my apologies to somebody. I'm like, I'm not in the business of passing along apologies. You could have done that before. You've already pled guilty. You had 90 days. Um, you could have reached out and had restorative justice all on your own. You don't need me to do it. You don't need me to order it. Um, there are folks who know I'm in charge of my reentry program. And so we have a relapse prevention program there in the reentry program that spells out things that say, here's how I got into this trouble. Here's the things, the factors that lead me to use drugs or lead me to make these bad decisions. Here's the people. And I've had people fill out the relapse prevention plan because they have thought about how they got there, the things in their life that got them there, and the things they're going to do that they're going to do to improve themselves regardless of what my sentence is. And so coming in and being genuinely remorseful and not just saying I'm sorry to everybody in the courtroom, but knowing who the victims are and, and trying to heal that regardless of my sentence and just truly self-evaluate themselves and figure out how they got in this spot and start making conscious efforts to improve. When you, you spoke about remorse quite a bit there, and I know a lot of times defense attorneys will articulate the remorsefulness of the client. What type of weight do you put on a defense attorney's statement about the defendant's... A lot of people are not aware that prostitution is actually illegal in Clark County, Nevada, here in Las Vegas. Uh, and so we see a lot of bad consequences that come from engaging in acts of prostitution here, including... Uh, facing prosecution for solicitation of prostitution, but we also see worse consequences and we see a crime that's commonly referred to as trick rolling. Uh, a trick roll is really just a robbery and it's codified under NRS section 200.380. Uh, a trick roll uh, could involve a situation where a person thinks they're picking up a prostitute. They think that they're bargaining uh, to exchange in some kind of sexual activity. But the person that they're bargaining with 
actually has another plan in mind. And that might be to lure them into a hotel room where they might plan to rob them, to strike them over the head, to physically assault them, and to take their property. We also see trick rolls in the form of grand theft person under NRS section 295.270. And a grand theft person is when you take something from someone without force or fear, it might be in a trick roll scenario that instead of smacking you over the head and knocking you unconscious before taking your Rolex watch, uh, a prostitute could slip a Mickey in your drink uh, and wait till you fall asleep. And then you wake up and you find that your wallet is missing, your cash, your chips, your watch are missing. In that case, without force or fear, it could be charged as a grand theft person. The difference between a robbery and a grand theft person is that a robbery subjects an individual to up to 15 years in the state prison, whereas for a grand theft person, the maximum penalty here in the state of Nevada is five years unless the amount taken was over $3,500, in which case the maximum penalty goes up to 10 years in the state prison. Nevada law permits people to keep loaded handguns in their vehicles. Handguns include smaller guns such as revolvers and pistols. Meanwhile, Nevada law does not permit people to drive with loaded rifles or shotguns. People may drive with long guns that have loaded magazines. However, a cartridge may not be in the firing chamber. People without CCWs, which are permits to carry concealed weapons, are not required to keep their guns loaded or unloaded visible in their vehicle unless they are physically carrying the gun. Therefore, carrying a gun concealed in a holster, pocket, or purse is legal only if the person has a CCW permit. Otherwise, it is legal for people with or without CCW permits in Nevada to keep their guns concealed in their glove compartment, trunk, center console, or elsewhere in the vehicle, whether it is visible or not. If the person does not have a CCW permit, a person may still keep a gun concealed in luggage, a backpack, or other cases in the vehicle as long as he or she is not physically carrying it. If you are facing criminal charges in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. The attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group will do everything to try to get your case resolved as quickly and favorably as possible. Two days. This is what a federal complaint looks like. And this is that case, that Irving Plaza shooting that happened last May with the rapper Troy Ave. And Troy Ave 
is free on half a million dollars bail. He was charged with gun possession. He's the one that you all saw in that video that NYPD put out and that we put out of running through the club with the gun out shooting or looking like he was shooting. Um, that's Troy Ab. So he was charged with weapons possession. He was also charged with attempted murder. Now come to find out, the feds on yesterday, on Monday, they, oh wait, today's Tuesday, yeah. Um, on Monday, they, I still don't have my whole schedule, uh, you know, back intact yet. But um, on Monday, a hip-hop podcast personality named Taxstone, his real name is Daryl Campbell, he was picked up at, at his aunt's home on Alabama Avenue in East New York, and, and this was on two gun charges. One gun charge, one of the charges was gun possession for a um, convicted felon, because if you're a convicted felon, you're not allowed to have a handgun. Um, the second second charge was interstate trafficking with the gun, because the gun was uh, came from Florida, which was probably stolen at some point along the way. So he was in federal court today, 500 Pearl Street, and the prosecutor in, in this complaint talked about some things that I found very surprising. He said that the prosecutors are saying that Taxstone, aka Daryl Campbell, that this 9mm semi-automatic uh, Caltech handgun that was used in the shooting that killed uh, Troy Ave's bodyguard, Ronald Banga McFadda, that that handgun, and also wounded Troy Ave and two other people, that that handgun was actually in the possession of Daryl Campbell, a.k.a. Taxstone. So what does that mean? It means that, according to what the prosecutors say, they're saying Taxstone had the gun, that he shot Troy Ave, as he was shooting Troy, aiming at Troy Ave, Troy Ave's bodyguard, Ronald McFadder, tried to jump in and stop him. That's when he ended up getting shot in the chest and died from that wound. Then there were a couple other shots. One hit a, a woman that was there and another went through the floor and hit somebody in the floor below. And then there was a scuffle over the gun. Troy Ave takes the gun. Daryl Campbell, a.k.a. Taxstone's gun, takes that gun, and then that's where we see the video that um, so many of us saw, you know, that NYPD released where he's running and he's he's holding out that gun and, the, and then he's running. So what the feds are saying is that eight months later, that this gun that ended up in Troy Ave's car, because Troy Ave left the club and then went to his, his car and the, the gun was found in the car by police, according to what they're telling us, that this gun belonged to Taxstone. So the question you might ask yourself is if this is the case, why wasn't Taxstone arrested for the murder of Banger? Why wasn't he hit with some kind of attempted murder charges, what they, which is what they usually do when there's a case of a shooting and, um, you know, it, it's, it's with a deadly of course, a deadly weapon like a gun. So those are, those are some of the questions. But here's what came out in court, which I thought was interesting. The prosecutor, um, assistant assistant district attorney 
for the uh, feds, for the federal federal prosecutors. He said that the reason for this long delay, eight months since the incident happened, was because so few people were talking. So that was incredible. That was one thing. Then the other thing that he said was that in the past two months, somebody started to talk. So it seems like they either picked somebody up um, who, you know, they either picked somebody up who, um, you know, wanted to bargain with them or get a reduced charge or something like that. And that's what happened. And, and then the, in terms of the ballistics, this was the interesting thing too. And I wanted to explain this because there were a lot of people having comments on, um, asking, asking me about this. How was the gun in the Irving Plaza shooting, which Troy Avenue allegedly had in his possession in his car, how does that end up being the gun of Tack Stone, a.k.a. Daryl Campbell? So what happened is, according to the federal prosecutors, Tack Stone shoots the, his gun at Troyev. Troyev's bodyguard, who ends up being killed, tries to wrestle the gun away. There is a scuffle. Troyev is shot, and then the gun... Troyev picks up the gun and then runs out of that green room and runs out of the club and takes that gun into his car. So that's the narrative that the federal